It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. Well known for her Celtic knotwork designs for applique, sashiko, embroidery, and quilting, Scarlet Rose also enjoys designing delightful scrap quilts based on traditional patterns. She brings a unique perspective to these redesigned classic patchwork patterns, keeping the vintage look but using easier techniques for the construction. Scarlett, I'm so glad that you agreed to be on A Quilter's Life. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's start with your background. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Shasta County, California, and I still live there. Did you come back to there, or have you lived there all along? I've lived here all along. I get my adventures by traveling. Oh, fun. Tell me a special memory you have of growing up in Shasta County. It was rural. My parents originally had a hog farm when I was very small. And then as I got older and we moved into town, it's still within the county, not within a city limit. So, you know, you run wild as a child. You have fun. You make mud pies. You ride your bike for miles. And you have a blast. Neat. I am thinking Shasta County's in northern Yes, it is. Between Sacramento and the Oregon border. Okay. Did you have other employment before you got into quilting? Yes. After college, I worked for a fabric store, Fabricland, for about 15 years. Do you remember why maybe you went to that store to get a job besides going somewhere else? At that time, it was a brand new store opening. I mean, I had shopped all the other stores. My mother sewed, so I sewed from the time I was a child. It just seemed like a neat place to work, and you can feed your habit there. I did bring some money home, but of course, a lot of what I brought home was fabric and patterns and (laughs) other kinds of goodies. Neat. Well, besides quilting, what other crafts do you do or have you done? I think I've experimented with most everything. I've done a little bit of counted cross stitch. I do hand embroidery still, because that does cross over into quilting as well. Mm-hmm. I did macrame way back in the day. I think that's where I got some of my interest in the type of applique I like to do. You kind of just try a little bit of everything. I did painting on sweatshirts when that was the big thing. It's just whatever seemed to catch my eye, I gave it a try. Neat. Any other hobbies besides craft hobbies? I read. I enjoy fantasy and science fiction novels and kind of the cozy murder mysteries, not the really scary ones. (laughs) And that's translated into audiobooks. It's neat to be able to sit and quilt and listen to books or, you know, wash fabric or do anything else. Household chores even. It's more fun if you can listen to a book. Uh Uh-huh. Tell me who introduced you to quilting. It was kind of a family thing in a way. My dad's mother, my grandmother, quilted in the 30s and 40s. And again, my mother taught me to sew. And so I kind of grew up in a sewing household. The bicentennial was the big influence on me since it wasn't somebody locally. 
that was the big Better Homes and Gardens contest where Ginny Beyer won $10,000, $15,000 for a quilt. I was in high school at the time, and I thought, wow, you can make money off of making quilts. <laughs> and so I jumped into that. I, you know, I looked at my grandmother's scrappy quilts, the few magazines and books that were out at the time. You pick up a few of those, and I just dove in from there. It took me some years before I actually took a class from someone. We didn't have a quilt shop around in my area until closer to 1980. So it was kind of just, I'm going to go ahead and try this. It looks like it might be fun. Neat. Can you still picture that first quilt you made? I still have my first quilt. It was just kind of like a scrappy nine patch one. And I made quilts when my brother went away to college. I actually made him a robe velour quilt out of squares from the remnant bin. And that quilt is one of my legendary quilts because he took it to college, did the mattress on the floor thing. I thought it'd be used up and thrown away. No, both of his daughters have taken it to college. I've redone it because the muslin backing on it gave out at some point and I had to put double knit on it. And it is now virtually indestructible. It has survived slumber parties with bunches of kids. It's been a tent out in the yard. Now we're working on the greats who are calling dibs on, can I take this quilt to college when I go? Oh, wow. Describe your favorite quilt, quilt pattern, or a quilt that you made. For the very favorite quilt probably is still Celtic orchids. That was the first big quilt I made with Celtic applique on it. And I hadn't even planned to make a big quilt. It was one of those, once I figured out how to draw Celtic knots, I started making blocks with no idea where it was going to go. When I got nine blocks done, then it was like, I think I need to make a quilt out of this. And then I designed a border for it. And once I had made that quilt, that was the turning point quilt. Before that, I had shown quilts in the fair and some other shows, competitions, taught classes, things, but never thought about writing a quilt book. Once I had that quilt done, that's where it was like, maybe I should try to be published. So that was sort of a real key quilt for me. It wasn't an easy quilt to work on. It was a black background, which is dreadful to try to hand quilt. I wasn't smart enough not to quilt it in black thread. <laughs> <laughs> I quilted some of it in green, but I did some of it in black. I was like, I'm never going to do that again. But, you know, you learn and you move on. Wow. My next question is, do you lean toward a certain color palette? And I'm picturing, surely it's not black. No, I tend to be a bright person. I like very high contrast things. When styles changed, they were doing the watercolor stuff. I was lost. Blendy Blendy doesn't work with me. I tend to like everything to really kind of jump out and you can really see either where the patches or the appliques are. I admit I have tried some different styles and I'm not a, a narrow color palette person like Civil War quilts or some of the other ones where it's really restricted on the colors. If I find some color I like, I kind of train myself to get past that. I'll admit when I first started quilting, my favorite color was blue. So I made a lot of stuff in blue. Probably the worst color that I hated was orange. I really hated orange until I realized I love California poppies. Yeah. There are flowers who come and I love oranges. So I had to make a quilt with orange in it to figure out why limit myself to only certain colors. And now I use everything from the neon stuff, and I have done some pastel stuff, but my strength is in the contrast. Wow. How about a favorite tool? 
For me, the number one is bias bars. I make all of my own bias tape. And I have done since the very beginning. I was very fortunate when I learned to applique that you have to decide what style you want to make. And I stumbled across Philomena Durkin back in 1980 when she had self-published her first book. And as I mentioned before, the whole thing about the knot work, whether it was macrame, string figures that you used to do as a kid, I was a champion at playing those, uh, spirograph, anything that caused a knot-like effect or a design. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated by those. And so when I found her book, and I still have a personal autograph copy, a first edition of her original book, I knew that's the direction I wanted to go with my applique. And making my own bias tape just fit along with that because packaged stuff only comes in limited colors. There's not much choices. I want to use hand dyes. I want to use batiks. I want to use wild prints, stripes, plaids. If you tell me I can't use it for a a bias tape, I'll probably make bias (laughs) tape out of it just to show you that it can be done. Wow. Could you explain to me how the Celtic knot is made with the bias tape? A Celtic knot, most people are familiar with like the Book of Kells or just seeing from Irish step dancing, other sources where you have a continuous strand that weaves over and under, over and under, and comes back to where it starts. That makes a complete knot. That's the pure Celtic knot. In applique, I normally do quarter inch bias tape, fairly narrow, so it'll do curves, fairly tight curves, and fairly intricate designs. I had to learn how to draw Celtic knots because once I had gone through Philomena's stuff, she had a whole book full of designs, but you know, that's just a set grouping and I wanted to draw my own. There are a couple Celtic art books. Celtic Art, The Method of Construction by George Bain was the one I started with. And there's a whole mathematical precision about drawing these knots and how they're supposed to work. And it was fascinating. I didn't realize it was a math theory type of thing. They call it the knot theory. And it's really technical and everything. Leonardo da Vinci drew knot work. He didn't call it Celtic because he was doing it from the math viewpoint. But it was just something that fascinated me. A lot of people, even if they haven't seen a Celtic knot, have seen those woven baskets that you see in Baltimore album quilts made out of reeds or wood strands or strips so that it looks like a woven basket or the people who do pine needle weaving or anything like that. In a way, that's almost like a Celtic knot because you have to weave that over and under so those pieces all stay together. So to me, it's a lot of related things. People don't realize they've probably seen something interwoven that would form a knot, but it is out there. And it just got to be such a fascination for me once I learned how to draw them that I wanted to run with that. At first, some knots are all one strand. You can put your finger on it anywhere. Keep tracing, keep tracing, keep tracing. It comes back to itself and it covers the entire knot. Others are multiple strands, and that's where you can change colors of bias tape. That usually tends to show off the intersections a lot more. Again, back to Celtic orchids, my first big quilt, I used three yards of green fabric to make all the bias tape for that, the borders, the blocks, and everything. If I were to do it now, I would change colors of green or use different green prints to show off the fact that most of those knots are multi-stranded, and you would see the weaving a lot more. Because if you just do it all in the same solid color, it looks very flat. Yeah. I'm picturing, I looked on your website and saw you had some designs for cross-stitch. And those designs had slightly variated colors. So would those each be 
a different strand in your knot? Well, the cross-stitch patterns, again, that was something since I learned to cross-stitch and I enjoyed that, I wanted to do Celtic knot patterns. And you could do different strands of color depending on, again, where the knot shape is. It's a little bit hard to explain through cross-stitch, but those patterns are also adaptable to applique or even straight embroidery. And I've even taken some of them and done them with the fabric markers and things. Sometimes people tend to tell me, well, I don't want to do bias tape. Well, you don't have to do bias tape in order to get to the Celtic knot part. That's where my design is, is Celtic, rather than just necessarily focusing on applique. Because Celtic knots, you can even piece them. There are several book authors who've written books on strip piece Celtic knots that are more geometric in shape. Um, So my whole focus is Celtic stuff, the knot work and how you can interpret it in whatever possible technique, whether it's piecing, applique, embroidery, fabric markers, beading, cross stitch, any type of craft can interpret a Celtic knot. That's neat. A lot to work with. Yeah, never ending. I'm never going to run out of ideas, that's for sure. (laughs) What is your favorite part of the quilting process? I'm a designer. I really prefer just spending time drawing patterns. I use electric quilt. I was a beta tester for them for a couple of their versions. And that was one of my things I really pushed them for was to be able to draw my Celtic knot work in the quilt program. We had a local newspaper that would sell their roll ends from the newsprint. And I bought a bunch of those, and that way I could draw my knots full size without spending a lot of time on a table with a huge piece of paper and a ruler trying to draw stuff and make it look symmetrical and everything. Once the quilt program started coming out, I wanted to be able to draw my applique on the computer. And I have to tell you, that's one of my big resources. I tend to play with things. By the time I actually make a quilt and turn it into a pattern or a competition quilt, I probably have anywhere from a dozen to two dozen variations in that one computer file. Slight things that I've changed, different colorways. You have to pick one way. And I only make one quilt, but that leaves me all these backlogs of designs at some point I want to reinterpret. I have been doing some of that. It's neat you can do with a quilt program is you can export a color image of what you've drawn. And now I have them custom printed on fabric through Spoonflower. So I'm creating my own printed fabric. And that's been a blast because I already have all that stuff drawn up. Neat. I didn't get to look at your Spoonflower page too long, but they really were nice and crisp, nice looking fabrics. Thank you. And my emphasis has been all of my prints are made of solid colors rather than trying to put textures or details in them. Part of that's the modern quilt movement. Everything's going back to solid, simpler fabrics. But it's also a chance to do embellishment because I am a hand quilter more than a machine quilter. I do some machine quilting, but it's not my favorite thing. Once you hand quilt on something, whether it's feathered plumes, cross hatching, other kinds of designs, and then, you know, you're stitching on it, you can add beads to it. You could quilt it in embroidery. That's where I pull in my Japanese heritage. I'm half Japanese on my mother's side. So I do sashiko stitching which Americans do big stitch quilting with pearl cotton threads. So you can do a lot to a solid color print where it has nice big open areas of solid color to add embellishment into it and do all that quilting. Then you have a gorgeous quilt and then it's a whole cloth quilt. 
it's like they call now a, a panel quilt print. Back in our day, we called them cheater quilts, but <laughs> I like panel quilts. It sounds a little bit politer. <laughs> but you just buy the yardage, and then it's up to you how you quilted an embellishment, and then you have a beautiful quilt. Wow. I'm sorry, my brain's going back to the quilt my mom made for my oldest son when he was first born, and she just drew out from coloring books on one sheet of cloth and then embroidered and then put strips between them on top of the cloth. So when you said cheater quilt, that's always what comes to my mind. It felt like she just cheated. She she didn't have to really put it together. <laughs> yeah, but see, that worked. It, it, it looks does. like a block quilt with lattice on it. And the source she used, that's when people ask me, well, I can't find an applique pattern that has whatever tree, bush, animal on it. My first recommendation is coloring books, mm -hmm. simple line drawings. You know, there are graphic design books too, and there's a lot of art books that have some neat ideas, but coloring books are a wonderful source for just simple things that can be easily turned into applique as well as embroidery. Neat. Now for the fun question. What was your worst quilting experience? <laughs> Well, for me, when I was doing the quilts for my first book, I was a lucky person. The first publisher of this was the American Quilter Society in Paducah. I had taken their lecture on how to become a quilt book author, went home, put together a proposal, sent it in, and they accepted me. And I think I about fell over. <laughs> I thought I was supposed to get rejections, you know. But then they were like, well, you need to have so many projects in your book. And I'm like, well, I have these quilts. I need to make some more. So I started a quilt. It was a medallion design. I had this beautiful border. I made the first side of that border, laid it on the floor and went, I don't like it. Oh my gosh, what do I do? I don't like it. I've already started. It's applique. The center's beautiful. So I wound up splitting that into two quilts. I had to redesign a whole nother border for that medallion center, which I liked a lot better. And then I was stuck with this very ornate, gorgeous border that I had to create a center for. And both of those quilts did wind up in my first book, Celtic Style Floral Applique. But I originally called it the Nightmare Medallion <laughs> because it did. It drove me nuts. I could not believe it wouldn't work. I couldn't think of, you know, take a piece of fabric off, add some stuff in, cut it up, do something with it. It just would not go. So that would be the toughest spot I ever hit working on my quilts. <laughs> now, why do you make quilts? Well, I have to say I'm probably a fabric addict. Like I said, I started sewing when I was a child, and I've always liked fabric, whether it was for clothing or quilting and the colors. I couldn't imagine not sewing. There have been times where I've taken sabbaticals from making quilts, but it's been for like, you know, I got married. I made my own wedding outfit, <laughs> the groom's outfit, the bridesmaids outfits. So 16 months, I didn't work on any quilts. I did bridal clothing. I just did this this last year. I didn't make very many quilts last year, but my oldest niece got married and she wanted a vintage Japanese wedding kimono she bought off of eBay taken apart and made into a modern wedding dress. So that's what I did last year. Other kinds of things like that kind of intrude, but it's still sewing. It's still fabric. I'm still creating something. And that's just part of who I am. Mm -hmm. Who do you make your quilts for? They've been for me pretty much. I mean, I do make baby quilts, all these people that pop up pregnant, you know, in the family and stuff. 
some of my high school, college friends. Um, so I do simple things like that for gifts, and I have done some for donation. We've had a number of fires here in the area, so I've donated either blocks or quilt tops or other things for that. But I never got into selling my quilts. My dad originally thought that's what he thought I was going to do, is I was going to make quilts to sell. But I preferred making only one of any kind of quilt. Like, I can't churn out a bunch of log cabin quilts. I get bored with that. Usually once I make a design, I'm happy. That's it. I'm done. Mm -hmm. So I started competing with them. And then I started teaching them and found how much I loved teaching somebody how to do what I did. And so most of my quilts have been either competition pieces or they're classroom samples. That's kind of been more the direction I've gone with them. I've done some one-woman shows with them. I had a show in Osaka, Japan back in 2002, actually. I had an exhibit there. You can do that kind of stuff with your quilts and sell them, but I, I couldn't bear to even try to figure out what I would charge for one of my quilts. So I still pretty much have all of mine. I can't imagine even putting a quilt in a competition. That must be exciting for you. It is, and it's the one way that I do compete. I mean, a lot of people, you do sports in school or go to bait club or something. And for me, I was a flag carrier with the marching band, so we did compete. But we were kind of an accessory to the marching band part. As long as I didn't bean somebody with my flagpole, I was good. (laughs) But competition with quilts, I went through the struggle a lot of people do. You put something in the fair, and it's neat to win a ribbon. But when you move up to the higher level competitions, there's a certain amount of figuring out why certain quilts win. And I have taken classes on how to judge quilts. I am also a quilt judge, and I've done that for many decades. So I've done both sides of the fence. It's one of the lectures that I like to give people because if you don't understand both sides, it kind of makes it harder. You don't want to take it personally. Your quilt is your baby in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. What they're judging is the quilt itself not you personally, and they don't necessarily get to even hear the story that goes behind the quilt. They're looking at the quilt itself. When I first started judging, the training, a lot of it was based on what you did in 4-H, and that's pretty deadly. They used to use a score sheet where you got points and things. So workmanship was like number one. Do your points match? Do you have good sharp points? Is your quilt square? Did you follow the grain line when you cut all of your patches? The design was nice, but it wasn't the overall thing. The world now in quilting, of course, is you have art quilts. These are things that are going to hang on the wall. So they don't really care if the binding is perfect or the workmanship. That's where raw edge stuff came in and you have strings dangling and things because those aren't going to be washed and used by people so they can hang on the wall and they're nice. And visual impact is the most important thing. The quilt has to to call you. You have to look at that and go, oh my gosh, look at this thing. So the shift toward judging on that is visual impact is number one. Modern quilts, they have a whole aesthetic of their own. I just joined the Modern Guild this last year. They were more up on doing the Zoom thing, and I wanted to learn more about that. But I also wanted to learn about the style. And their whole viewpoint was a simplification, negative space, taking quilt blocks and doing some really different things with them. It's just a different perspective. Some styles I can adapt into what I do. Sometimes I don't. I'm willing to try, take a class, learn about it, study a little about it. Because as a quilt judge, if I'm going to be judging at a county fair or at a major quilt competition, and I've done a number of those on the national level, 
you need to be up on what the new styles are. It's a good excuse to keep on top of all of these things because you never know what you're going to wind up seeing in a competition. Mm -hmm. There's always more to it than what you see on the surface. Very much so. And stories and quilts, I mean, that's still a great love of mine, those old quilts that my grandmother made. One of them from the 30s and 40s that has great aunts and uncles signatures on it, as well as everybody of that generation. That's part of my genealogical record. Things like that. People say, well, it's just this old, worn kind of scrappy quilt. Well, the fabrics are from my grandfather's shirts. Some of the other scraps in there are pieces of fabric from clothing worn at that time. They recycled everything. It was the middle of the Depression. But that's what the charm is. And that's where a lot of it now are upcycling that we're doing and everybody's repurposing things. People are really getting into doing memory quilts where you take somebody's childhood clothing and you make it into a quilt. So when they go away to college, they have this familiar thing, a popular area of T-shirt quilts where you, all those wonderful shirts that you collected through all your sporting events becomes a quilt, something that you can cherish. Quilts can signify significant events besides things like weddings and babies. The whole thing with the quilts of valor that were recognizing military veterans. I have a number of those in my family. My entire family was involved in World War II. I've got a Navy, Merchant Marine, Army. My grandmother and my aunt both worked in the shipyards in the Bay Area. They worked on minesweepers. So anything that commemorates somebody in your family or does something to recognize accomplishments of all kinds got a story to it and an importance to it. Mm -hmm. What are you working on right now? I'm working on my foundation paper piece series. When this pandemic hit not quite a year ago, I had been thinking I wanted to learn and practice more on designing paper piece patterns because I do enjoy those. I've already done several quilts, but a little bit basic. So I came up with what I call the Hearts and Home series. So I've been sewing all these little four-inch blocks and they're little houses. They started out houses with little hearts on them. And then I said, well, I can slap a heart in the middle of a tree or I can make other little weird shapes. It could look like a real house or it could be kind of a, an elf's house, a fantasy house, something a little bit different. So I've been just creating all kinds of little very small, I mean, that's a four-inch finished size, paper piece patterns. Of course, the way paper pieces are nowadays, a lot of them will just take that to a copier and blow it up and make a six or eight-inch block <laughs> in it, and the pieces are much bigger. But it made a nice size for me, and then that way I can create a village, put all these little houses on there, put in little trees. I've done some little cats. Just before you called, I'm working on shrubbery, some little bushes and some other things. What else I can make in a little four-inch square? that would fit and be interchangeable. I'm just having a blast doing little paper piecing and it uses up itty bitty little scraps. So that's <laughs> wonderful. Oh, four inch squares. That is so tiny. It is. It's not as small as I've seen. I mean, most of my pieces, you're still talking inch by a couple inches. There are some smaller bits. They just seem to be something fun for me to do that was a, a nice little size. So it's my four by four houses and village stuff. Oh, neat. Can you give me a quilting tip? Usually my thing is, is when you get your quilt done, you've made the top, you've got it quilted, take your time with the binding. Whether or not you're going to ever have it judged, that seems to be the part where a lot of people just want to slap that on and kind of say it's done. 
if you go back to, is this quilt going to be used by somebody? It's going to be washed. It's going to be on a bed. You want that binding to wear well and be sturdy. There are so many neat new techniques. I love that flip binding that people are doing where it's got the two colors sewn together. And when you sew it on the back and flip it to the front, it winds up having a little piping on the edge. Yeah. That is the coolest stuff. I have to tell you, I did a queen size quilt a couple decades ago where I made piping and I piped the entire edge of the quilt. Wow. And I'm like, I don't have to do that anymore. I can just do this technique. I love it when somebody thinks of a clever way to get the look you want without all the extra work. Mm-hmm. But binding are important. I mean, it's the wear of the quilt. It'll affect how the quilt will hang. If it's a, a piece that's going to hang on the wall, if it will hang straight and flat. And it's a finishing touch. A lot of times a binding will make and break a quilt from the visual impact. So follow through to the end as far as the binding goes. I know that's that last little step in there, but it is important. That's a great tip. Thanks. You're welcome. Well, describe for me how you went from having quilting as a hobby to doing it as a business. That happened because I joined the local guild in my area. I was the youngest person for the longest time. The first time I walked into one of the guild meetings, I looked around, saw all the ladies with gray hair and went, I don't think I fit in here because I was like 20. Mm -hmm. So I turned around and left. Well, not quite a year later, I went back, went to one of the meetings, but the ladies were very welcome. I went up and actually talked to them. And a number of them became my best friends, even though I was the age of their daughters. I discovered that quilting It's not so important necessarily how old you are. It's how long you've been quilting. And of course, once I got in there and started sharing what I do and what I came up with and what I tried and figured out on my own, they're like, you should teach. So I started teaching for the guild, you know, little freak classes or little things there. And then as we did start having quilt shops in the area, I started teaching on the local level. Then you start teaching throughout California kind of thing, you know, as people hear of you back then, you know, they weren't the big organizations that you have now where it's a bunch of guilds type of thing. Once I started competing, and particularly once I started sending quilts to Houston and Paducah, I started getting people writing me letters because they would peek at the label. You knew they touched the quilt even though they weren't supposed to, but they peeked at the label on the back and they wrote me and said, where is this pattern or what book did you use for this? And then I realized that I could move from teaching just not even my local or regional area, but teaching on the national circuit. Because once you get a book out and you're published, that's what happens. People start contacting you from around the country. In my case, that's the only reason I was hired. I've taught in Japan twice. And they only hire published authors because it's expensive. It's really expensive to fly someone there and have them teach. So that was just the step in the process. And it's been a fun thing all along as far as that. And it wasn't something I said, I'm going to become a professional quilt pattern designer or I'm going to become a book author. It's just, oh, okay, I'll try that. I'll teach somebody what I do. That's fun. Oh, that's neat. Once you get over the scare of getting up in front of 100 people and talking to them, I mean, I had nightmares in debate club in school. Luckily, I didn't faint in the middle of class. But once I found that I could get up and talk about my quilts and actually enjoy it, then that's not a problem. So, you know, it solves some problems for you because you talk about what you love and everybody gets that. That's great. It's fun. And then they pay me to do that. (laughs) So in in a way, I feel very fortunate that I get to do this and people pay me money. Yeah. How did you feel when you first saw one of your books come out? 
It was amazing. I sweated bullets over writing it. I wrote it on an old data processing machine that I bought, one of those early sort of semi-computerized. It stored information on floppy drives. This was in the early to mid-90s. So there weren't personal computers were really expensive and didn't really do much. Having to go through the editing process, having somebody rewrite my stuff and negotiate over what we'll keep and what we'll not keep. I will admit that I spent a good price of money to go into a local photographer with a good reputation. I had one of those glamour photo studio shots because I said, if I'm going to have a picture on the back of a book that's going to be published and it will be there forever, I don't want to look like my high school portrait. (laughs) (laughs) So the picture on the back of both of my books is one of my glamour photos. So I was happy about that. And I was just thrilled. In a way, it gives you a legitimacy that you don't get just from saying, oh, I teach quilting. A lot of us very much respect that. But outside of the quilting world, when you go to quilt shows, you always get the people who wander through. Oh, yeah, my mom quilts or my grandma quilts. Isn't that nice? Mm-hmm. In a way, that's kind of a compliment. At least they are paying attention. But on the other hand, you're a professional at what you do. It's something you enjoy doing. You're creating designs, original work. It's an art piece if you're going that direction. Yeah, I was amazed. And when I first walked into my local library and I saw my book on the shelf, that made it. Oh, wow. I hadn't even (laughs) thought about that. Oh, yeah. So with designing, how did you feel when you saw a design you made, the quilt was made by someone else? I love that. And I constantly ask people whenever I teach classes or if I find one online, because I collect pictures and I have collected pictures of Celtic quilts ever since I got on the internet in the mid to late 90s. And from going to quilt shows and shooting originally rolls of film, I used to photograph any or all Celtic quilts and bunches of quilts. I do document those. I do ask people's permission because I do have several slide lectures Nowadays, it's Zoom presentations Mm -hmm. of quilts that people have done. And I love being able to show one of my patterns because, again, I'm only ever going to make one. And I think it's neat. Someone did it in a totally different color scheme. They chose the type of fabrics they like that maybe I would never touch, that I'd never buy. Maybe they make a few alterations. Sometimes people are very apologetic. They're like, well, I liked your block, but I changed the flower or I moved something or whatever. It's like, I'm cool with that. As long as you give me credit, you say where the pattern's from, just so that people know where that comes from, I'm fine with that. And I love to see the pictures of them. It's like Christmas when something pops in my email and I get to see, oh, I've finished this from some class or I bought your book and I decided to make this. I love seeing those. I think it's great. And when did you start your business? The teaching started in the 80s, like I said, with just the local quilt shop thing. Once I got my books published, the first came out in 1995 and the second in 97. That's when I set up a website and started selling stuff online. And as a quilt teacher, once you start traveling, you have a table of goodies that people come and snatch up after you finish your program. And I specialized in that, and I kind of still do. At that time, there were a number of people who designed Celtic patterns. I pretty much know everybody in my style. Besides Philomena Durkin, there's... Beth Ann Williams, Gail Lawther, Angela Madden, my friend Michiko Shima in Japan is my counterpart over there, Danielle Garan in France, even more ladies. There's a lady in South Africa that does some beautiful stuff. There's people in Australia. 
I can look at a Celtic quilt and probably tell you whose pattern they used or what style they did, or even if it's a totally original piece. So it's just something that I've kind of kept track of all along. Wow. Tell me your business name and how did you come up with that name? Well, I wanted to keep my name in there. Scarlet Rose is too good to give up. Mm -hmm. Even when I got married, I didn't change my last name. I'm like, I'm sorry, your last name doesn't quite ring that bell. And I already own my domain name, scarletrose.com. So I just stayed with that. The business name is Scarlet Roses Celtic and More, because that's basically what I'm doing. I'm focusing on Celtic, but I do more because I do the foundation paper piecing. I do the traditional quilts like I talked about, the signature quilt that my grandmother did, the original blocks. She never put those together. I just inherited a stack of them when she passed away. So I picked a, a, an appropriate 30s pattern made a bunch of blocks out of the reproduction fabrics that were coming out at the time, got family and friends and relatives from that time, this was in the early 90s, to sign those blocks. So when I made a big queen-size quilt, it looks like a vintage 30s quilt, but it has quilts from the 90s. So it's 60 Years of Remembrances is the title of that one. So I have several quilt patterns that I do and lectures and classes that I teach that are based on my take on the traditional. Well, we've talked about several things. Have we covered everything that your business offers? I am on Instagram. That's Scarlet Rose Designer. I got into that. Finally, it's been, I think I'm coming up on two years. So I'm always looking for people if they want to follow me and see what I'm doing. I'm on Facebook, Scarlet Roses Celtic and more. I have Pinterest boards. That's under Scarlet's Roses because someone already had taken my name. And so I'm trying to do the social media thing this year. I've already been teaching Zoom classes, Zoom lectures for several guilds and have more of those scheduled going forward. I don't ever see myself retiring from this. Uh, one of my best friends, I think she retired in her 90s from teaching quilting. Wow. And since I'm only 60, I have 30 years to go. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not a problem. I'm just going to keep doing what I love. Great. Well, thank you so much, Scarlett. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you spending your time with me. Well, thank you, Paula. It's been really nice. I'm glad I saw the post and that I jumped on it and decided to go ahead and do it. It's been wonderful. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm so glad you joined me for this episode of A Quilter's Life. You can find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. If you're enjoying this podcast, would you consider leaving a review as it helps others to find the show? Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. Please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website or a Quilters Life Facebook group to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening.